Nine years ago, we moved into the Woodside neighborhood, which is right over there. Uh, it's about a mile and a half southwest of here. I can be to my office sometimes in under five minutes, which is annoying when I'm trying to listen to an audiobook or a podcast, but I can get here quickly. And it's nice because I can run home for lunch and very quickly eat a peanut butter sandwich and be back in no time. But here's the thing, in Woodside, we are literally surrounded by active train lines. Uh, if I head in any direction, I cross over or under a train line within a half mile, any direction. Walking, driving, you name it, I'll find one very quickly. And one particular train runs most nights at about 11.30, and it's probably about a quarter mile from our house, just across from the historic ball field in the Wood, Woodside Mill historic neighborhood. When we first moved in, Ashley and I would both be jolted awake by the horn blowing at 11.30 intermittently. That's if we had already gone to sleep, which we normally had, and it would blow and blow with complete abandon for like less than, no less than five minutes, just nonstop. And I would think, this conductor is a monster. <laughs> he is using the pretext of railroad safety to torture us. And within a few months, though, I would wake up after a peaceful night of sleep, I think Ashley too, wondering if he'd been fired for his crimes against us and against humanity. Like, because we didn't hear it anymore. But he hadn't, he hadn't been fired. The reason we didn't hear the horn anymore was because we got used to it. Got used to it. Honestly, I can't remember the last time I actually noticed the sound of the trains, even if we're sitting on our front porch. You might say this uh, about John the Baptist. You might say that he, that his ministry was a kind of train unexpectedly running right through Israel's living room. There had been no prophet in Israel for 400 years, but they had long before grown deaf to the sound of their own history and their identity and their calling. Before John even, prophetic voices were easily drowned out, suppressed, or forgotten, but John was undeniable. He had everyone's attention. Throughout Israel's history, a prophet like John served God's people in two ways. First, as an alarming mouthpiece of judgment, when Israel seemed to be deftly or indifferently pursuing their own ends. But secondly, the prophets embodied the Lord calling out to them in the middle of their deepest suffering. It wasn't just judgment, but it was also rescue. He was declaring that he had not grown cold and had not grown silent to his people. And Israel's prophets often announced that a day is coming, a better day, when promises would be fulfilled and when justice and salvation would finally arrive. So both of these things are happening in, uh, in and through John's ministry. Judgment is coming, and so is rescue. In fact, those are probably impossible to pull apart. Think about that. Judgment and rescue. Judgment for one often amounts to rescue for another. And we do well to remember that. Rescue is often difficult to come by when judgment, when justice is not being meted out. So John the Apostle and the author of our gospel, he says that John the Baptist came as a witness testifying. But when the Baptist describes himself, and this is important, he describes himself to the priests and the Levites who had come to hear him uh, in verse 23, he chooses more vivid language than just one witnessing 
or testifying. He uses language from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. In both the Hebrew and the Greek, this crying out word or phrase, it's close to the idea of a howling, of an outcry that sits everyone up in their beds at night. It's jarring, it's desperate, and it's accosting. This is the kind of crying out he's doing and that Isaiah said would happen. In other words, the horn is blowing to proclaim a promised highway is now being cut for judgment and justice and rescue. A line is now being laid between their present situation, their predicament, and even their deafness. A line between those things and their promised destiny. But here's the thing, not theirs only, but ours. This was about the destiny of the whole world, not just Israel, a reality that came through not just John, but it was already coming through Isaiah's prophecy. There was a Benedictine teacher in the 8th century named uh, Rabinus of Mans, and he told the ancient church this. He said, people speak loudly for three reasons. When the audience is distant, deaf, or angry. And he said, the human race is all three. It speaks to the necessity of prophets coming and crying out. John's message is clear. Like it or not, the kingdom is at hand. Will you turn from your own projects and be part of its advance? Or will you be surprised? Will you be stood up, sat up, jolted, passed by, or even run over by it? It's here. And so on this third Sunday of Advent, we remember the ministry of John the Baptist. Along with the Virgin Mary and John's own father, Zechariah, John, he is a central figure of Advent. And I think for obvious reasons. You could put it this way. Um, Though it was through Mary's body that the Son of God came into the world, it was through the womb of John the Baptist's ministry that Jesus' ministry was birthed. And both of these, we could say, were sort of like very un-Messiah-like births, wombs, if you will. Mary was just an unwed, pregnant teenager with no social capital from a tiny town in Galilee. John was pretty weird. He was a strange man living off the grid, far from the temple and establishment, with no political and no religious capital. We might, I think we have a tendency to, and I understand it, we might tend to mythologize John to make a character out of him because he was a character, right? He was odd in his time, he's odd in our time. And it's actually, though, I think these oddities that are meaningful and encouraged to us as we celebrate. As we celebrate the third Sunday of Advent, and all of Advent, again, as we do this in the spirit of anticipation and longing, I think his oddities are helpful, and I want us to consider three of them. Some of them are not obvious to us, I don't think. The first one is that John does seem to come out of nowhere in his strange clothes to everyone. Many believe that he spent his formative years in ministry studying and praying with a Jewish religious sect called the Essenes. Have you ever heard of the Essenes, anybody? Their writings, which amounted to like 900 parchments uh, that we call the Dead Sea Scrolls, these weren't found until 1946 in the region of Qumran. But they are arguably one of the most significant biblical and archaeological finds in modern history, maybe ever. 
And now that scholars better understand through these scrolls this particular community that lived in the Judean wilderness, John seems like a pretty good fit for that lot. Like, really good chance he was probably one of them, at least for a time. Because these passionate and cloistered Israelites, they believed this. They believed that their constant devoted reading and their copying of Scripture, coupled with their isolated and, and very devoted prayer in the wilderness, that this would be the means by which God would return to his people. That they might even be those who are making that straight path in the wilderness for the Lord to come. That they might be the very fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So much of John's ministry and message, even his lifestyle and his diet, dovetails with the Essenes. It's interesting. But here's the thing. John is very singular. We find this out. He veers away from everything and from everyone but the Lord. Not only from the Essene community, but also from his own lineage, which, again, uh, we have to read around and see the full story. He comes from a priestly family on both sides. His dad, Zechariah, was a priest, but his mother, Elizabeth, was from the line of Aaron. He had potentially some background by which to pursue his ministry. But he doesn't follow the path of the religious establishment, does he? Not to the priesthood and not in his ministry. It's strange. And it's compelling to think about God raising John up in this way. Here's the second odd thing about John's ministry. Baptism. Now, for us, we are like, well, that's his name, John the Baptist. That's not that strange. But what he was doing and the way he was doing it was very, very odd and very important in that time. At a pivotal moment, like a prophetic reflex, John began baptizing people in the Jordan. The fact that he carries the name Baptist and is mentioned you know, by the uh, first century historian Josephus, it points to how unique John and his baptism actually were. Like he got some obvious headlines. But let me give, just give you some background on why this, this baptism is really is different and important. When a Gentile in that day, a non-Jew, converted to Judaism, he would wash himself. That's how it would work. And that was the primary form of baptism, a conversion and washing yourself. But the Essenes, actually, whom we think maybe John was a part, they, um, they were known to have made this kind of baptism a, a regular part of their ceremonial purity routine. It wasn't just a one-off. They were doing some things differently. And there, but there are really two important differences between what John was doing and what his contemporaries were doing, even what the Essenes were doing. First... Again, these traditional forms of baptism, they were always self-administered. But John was baptizing people, and that was weird. Still today, the Jewish mikvah it is a self-administered immersion in a small pool of water, specifically for new converts to Judaism. Sometimes it's used for ceremonial cleansing, um, but, and occasionally one might immerse themselves for good measure, but it's very rare after conversion. And secondly, these baptisms, they weren't an act of repentance for sin. Not the way John was putting it out there. In Second Temple Judaism, offering a sacrifice at the temple was how you repented and atoned for sin. What John was saying was out of left field. So John was the first known person to baptize other people and to do so as an act of repentance for sin. There was no precedent. 
And that might not seem that weird to us, but look, this is why it got the hackles up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. This is important because John was not just a prophetic voice for repentance. He was a presence in it. He was going into the Jordan with people. Why is that important? In other words, they weren't on their own. He was embodying something that was coming and was to come. The word of God was pouring out of John's mouth while his hands were plunging people into the water. He was going into the Jordan again on behalf of God for his people, Israel, as their last prophet. It's, it, it, his ministry was a gift of God and fulfillment of God's promises. It was a powerful picture that God himself, through the last prophet of the old covenant, was beginning to deliver his people through the Jordan once again. The same Jordan that Jesus himself would go into, which I'll talk about in a minute. This means that the story of Israel is actually being gathered up right here and enacted in John's ministry first. And as Jesus said, there is no one greater among those born of woman than John. He was singular. And this is why our reading today is so important. And I think this is why it's so encouraging. As John makes clear in verses 26 and 27, his ministry as profound and powerful as it was, was only a sign and a preparation for the true forgiveness and rescue that would come in Jesus alone. It was almost as though he was limbering people up and stretching them out to be able to receive a new kind of understanding and repentance. But not novel in that sense. God had already prophesied these kinds of things through his prophets like Isaiah. This is why our reading, again, today is so important and encouraging. Because the Son of God, to whom John was pointing, would not merely wade into the Jordan with us, like John did with his people. He would arrive into the trouble of having a body like ours. God was coming into humanity. In some sense, Jesus was emptying himself baptizing himself into the plight of humanity to bring us through the troubled waters of what that means. And I know that you today, you understand what your trouble is and what those waters are. Jesus come into those. So again, one, John seemed to come out of nowhere. That was strange. His baptism had no precedent. Here's the third thing, the third really compelling and odd thing about his ministry. John was called and John was willing to shake up the establishment. And that's just not something you wanted to do. Nowadays, freedom of speech. By God, we have freedom of speech. In that day, to shake up the establishment was dangerous. But he was calling out those who thought they could rest on the laurels of their birth, their ethnicity, their religious acts, or their social capital, or any other kind of capital. That may, again, not seem strange to us. And actually, we kind of like that John was like that. Yes, stick it to the man, right, and to the establishment. But it was deeply subversive to the religious and cultural establishment of the day, and it put him at serious odds, not just with them, but with the norms of society. It made him an outcast and a weirdo. And so this is why the Pharisees and Sadducees came to surveil the scene. This is why they came to ask their questions. Their hackles were up. 
And I think it helps. I've, I've done this before. I think we, we probably don't really like to do this, but I think it helps us and our understanding if we try to relate to the Pharisees and the Sadducees a little bit. Relate to these, two, these maybe relate these two groups to our contemporary world and thus, I think, to ourselves. So the Pharisees, what about these folks? Let's call them the serious types. The experts at interpreting and communicating and keeping the law. They were the fundamentalists looking down their noses. You could call them a certain kind of conservative, the ones confusing and conflating even their nationalistic identity or their ethnicity with religious purity and prominence. All of that belonged together. In their eyes and in the eyes of others, they were good at this thing. Does that sound familiar? The Sadducees, they were the... Pharisees were the serious types. The Sadducees were the sophisticated types. Part of the religious nobility, to be sure. They were the culturally savvy. They were the enlightened ones from the ordained nobility, from the academy. They are the servants of the modern world. And so that made them uninterested in impractical ideas like the resurrection from the dead. Now is what matters. Cultural credibility, contemporary issues only. They were a certain kind of liberal, if you will, whose own social project was the way in which God was saving the world. Does that sound familiar? It should. And here's what I think is true. And before we start going, well, I'm not really like them, I'm not like them. I think that this line sort of runs right down the middle of all of us. I think that groups like this, and I think that empires, and our establishment, and our government, and all the things that are broken about the way in which we come together, they're just a mirror for all of us to look into. All of us. They are us, and we are them. On any given day, we so easily find ourselves captive to these ways of misrepresenting the gospel and domesticating God and the message of the kingdom. Put it simply, both of these approaches, what do they do? They deafen people to the message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. The gift of God. The people of God. They are both performative and they're humanistic and they're exhausting. But they're manageable in some ways. Both are idolatrous. The scary part is both of them are well-meaning, but they're both wrong. So John's pronouncement that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it meant not that something was about to happen, but that something was already happening. It was happening in and through uh, repentance and confession in these waters. This was a subversion. Hear this. It was a subversion of the ideologies of the serious and the sophisticated, of all the ways in which we might save ourselves and establish humanity on that which we've done, that which we understand, and that which has made us deaf to that which God has done and is doing and will do. Does that make sense? No? Okay. I'm still going to keep talking. John was making explicit something that was already obvious to him and would become even clearer in Jesus. And he says this in verses 26 and 27. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John's not saying that Jesus is coming later. He's actually using rabbinic language to say, this is somebody who was following me, but now he's far surpassed me. He's not my understudy anymore. And John had this revelation of Jesus that got much clearer at Jesus' own baptism. John was there and his mind was blown, even though he already had a sense of who and what Jesus was about. 
Listen to John's words that follow our gospel reading today. Verse 29 says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's actually a beautiful piece of art. It's kind of strange where John is pointing to Jesus at the Jordan from, from the waters of the Jordan and his finger is long and weird. But he wants to say, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He said, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to you, to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, and I myself did not know him. He says that several times. It's so interesting and honest. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John is already aware This is important as I try to sort of land this plane. He's already aware that he is just the messenger. Calling out, baptizing, but not able to save. Singular and powerful and good, but not able to save. That distinction and that baptism belongs to Jesus who's able to save. Though Jesus has no sin to confess, he has humanity to represent and us to cleanse with his own body. He goes into those waters. He will come out of the Jordan as the one fully sufficient before God to take away every sin. Past, present, and yes, the stuff you're probably going to do this afternoon. You might do. He's the perfect willing sacrifice. And as John will say later, I must increase or decrease, but he must increase. As Christians, brothers and sisters, as Christ wants, we're living our lives wholly dependent on God's rescue, which came through the judgment for sin that Jesus took upon himself on the cross. And really, when he went into John's baptism, it was a prefigure, it was a picture already of Jesus emptying himself and doing something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. It was an enactment, an early enactment, a picture of what was to come. John was the first to see and to herald it. And now we live in his legacy. During Advent, we get a kind of opportunity under the sound of John's voice that now for us echoes into the present through the gospel. We get a chance to return to the Jordan of our own spiritual rebirth. We get a chance to be reminded who we are because of the story into which we are reborn by God's initiative. Someone else has baptized us. And they weren't wearing this stuff. Jesus has into his own life. As beneficiaries of his salvation, we've become the ministers and the messengers of reconciliation too. We're not prophets in the way that John was, but we are those crying out in this wilderness, in your wilderness, for the one who can deliver and heal. Do you imagine your life that way? We're the ones prayerfully imagining a path for him to come into our circumstances, for him to come into our world as it groans and as it cries out continually for justice and rescue. We're the people who hear it, if we're still willing. We're the people who must stop to listen. We're the people called to proclaim with our lips and in our lives, as the prayer book 
puts it, this message. Because the kingdom is at hand. It always is, not just on Sundays, but on any given Tuesday. During Advent and every day of our life together. And so I just want to say this. Um, Maybe there's a lot that you are processing about how John's ministry might inform your own life, but it's enough today for us together to stop and listen again. And there are a few ways we're, we're doing that. To hear God's Word, to speak God's Word to one another, to sing God's Word in all of those truths, but also to listen in this way and say, there is nothing that speaks a better word than the blood of Christ, the body of Jesus. That's why we're here. And this is the legacy we've been given. This is the promise. And this is what saves. Do you believe it? Lord, help us again to believe it. Help us in your strength and your power with our lips and in our lives to be witnesses, to cry out in the way you've called each of us uniquely to cry out and, and for you and on behalf of others. Help us, your church, to be faithful. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.